in chapter 1, and we're going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to jump to the end of chapter 3. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. That is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Param and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This is after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Idri had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. And then a couple of pages over, we're into chapter 3, verse 21. At that time I commanded Joshua, You have seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you are going. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. At that time I pleaded with the Lord, O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. Go up to the top of Pishkah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So we stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. Thank you, Colin. Folks, if you could keep that uh, open before you, that part of the Bible. If you haven't opened it, um, I'd maybe invite you to think about doing that because it'll be easier to follow what I'm saying here if, if you have that open before you. Colin's already said we've started a, a new series uh, just last Sunday. It'll run right through the autumn time, this book of Deuteronomy, and we'll be thinking about this invitation to choose life. Uh, I said last week, the book of Deuteronomy is basically one amazing big sermon preached by Moses. Last week, I invited you to consider having a go at reading it this autumn. Hands up anyone who's thinking of taking up that invitation or has already started. 
Yep, okay, good. We bit of good news for anybody who didn't get started. We're going to spend a few weeks in the first six chapters. So if you want to keep up with us on Sundays, you don't have to, if you didn't get started, don't panic. Start now. Um, we'll probably be in the first six chapters for another two or three weeks. So um, get, get reading and uh, get enjoying Deuteronomy for yourselves. Last week I offered uh, a verse towards the end of the, the book as a, a sort of a summary passage where, the, where Moses says to the people, chapter 30, verse 19, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. We're thinking about life in this series. I hope that as we spend time in this part of God's Word, we'll get a, a really strong and clear sense of where life is to be found. The interesting thing in, in this book is that Moses, who invites us to choose life, doesn't shy away from talking about death. This is no superficial pep talk. It's not some sort of uh, we self-help uh, chat to boost their self-esteem. Moses is realistic enough in his analysis and wise enough in his discerning to know that sometimes you've got to see where you've been choosing death before you can choose life. Tell me this, um, how do you feel when somebody points out your failings to you? It's rough, isn't it? For the most part, we'd prefer it if the people around us colluded with us and continued to imagine that we're great. That we're perfect. Tell me this. Do you have anyone in your life who loves you enough to point out your failings to you? Do you have anybody who cares for you that deeply? So deeply that they'll point out to you where you're going wrong. If you do, then be grateful. You see, it's a rare thing for people to speak that kind of truth into our lives because most people aren't willing to pay the price. What, what do I mean by that? What's the price? Well, the price is this. If I speak truth into your life of a nature that you don't want to hear, you get to choose what you do with that truth and what you do with me. You get to choose to say to me, stuff you. Get out of my life and get back into your own. Leave your judgmentalism behind. <clears throat> Folks, it's a rare thing for someone to love us enough to tell us where we're going wrong. 
Do you have anyone like that in your life? You could have. I'll come back to that later. The people of Israel did have someone who was willing to tell them the truth about themselves, to speak into their lives, and it's Moses. And in these opening chapters of Deuteronomy, he shares some home truths. Remember the setting. We talked about this last week. They had left Egypt. They had had a go at entering into the promised land. They'd, they'd failed. So for 40 years, they'd been traipsing around in the desert. But now they're back on the border of the promised land. They can smell it and they can see it. There it is, just over there, a few miles from this hilltop where we're seated. And it's at this point that the old man, Moses, gets up and he speaks to them. And the honest truth is that the start of what he says makes for uncomfortable reading. It's uncomfortable actually to read Deuteronomy even before Moses starts to speak. Have a, have a look. Verses 1 and 2. These are clearly the words of a later editor. Moses uh, didn't write those words, but whoever compiled this book uh, did. This editor seems to get Moses. He's anticipating the direction that Moses is going in even before the start of his sermon. He says, these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. That is in the Aravah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. That's a precise geographical location. You don't know where it is. It doesn't really matter. It's on the border of the land. The people I'll try this. If I, if I kill this microphone, then... Um, they're on the border of the land. Look at the bracket. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. That little note from the editor sets the tone. Forty years to make an 11-day journey. Now, we don't like to be critical of people when we evaluate them, but I don't know about you, but any objective... How well did that journey go? Forty years to go 11 days journey. This is not good progress. We're being told before we even start that these people are in a bad place. And it's like Moses seems intent on, on making them relive the, the failures, if you like, of those 40 years. I, I think they're squirming before this sermon even starts. Moses, do we really have to go through all this? Yeah, we do. As I've had a look at these first three chapters, I see Moses point out two sins and take on to excuses. Excuse number one, we're not responsible. Moses uh, starts into his sermon. He points out that leaders have been appointed to the nation of Israel. They're there to ease the burden on Moses to share the responsibility. Why does he do that? It doesn't feel like it has an awful lot to do with the, the story, the 40 years, the desert. Why, why might he choose to do that? 
I think Moses wants them to see that what's happened these last 40 years isn't all his fault. He's saying, I devolved authority. You chose judges. So just in case, whenever we talk about all that's gone so badly wrong, and, and you're confronted with your own sin, just in case you want to turn around and say to me, well, well, you're the leader. Well, guess what? I was one of the leaders. You were the leaders. You chose your leaders. We're all in this together. Moses had his own failings, and we'll get a chance to think about that as we move through the book of Deuteronomy, but just just wants the people to be sure that this failure isn't just his responsibility. It, it belongs to them all together. Once he's established that they're all in this together, Moses reminds them of this 40-year journey that they're all responsible for. The NIV heading in verse 26 just about sums it up. Rebellion against the Lord. Uh, you know the TV program that uh, used to run on the ITV? I don't think it's on at the moment, but it has been on and off uh, for the last 15, 20 years. Holidays from hell. Well, this, this description that Moses gives here feels like a, a road trip or a holiday from hell. He retells the story of the 40 years. Look at verse 22. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead of us to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we're to take and the towns we'll come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. Verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and you said, The Lord hates us. Verse 32. In spite of this word... You did not believe the Lord your God. Moses doesn't go into a whole lot of detail here. He's, he's doing what, what unfolded over months and years just in a paragraph. But he simply reminds the people where they went wrong. They refuse to obey. They rebel against God's instructions. They grumble against God. This wasn't a good day for God's people, he says. When the Lord heard what you said, verse 34, he was angry and solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation will see the good land I swore to give to you and your forefathers. And look at verse 40. There's a grinding of the gears as the whole exodus goes into reverse and the people are sent back to the Red Sea. See what Moses is doing? He's confronting the people with their own sin. They've made really bad choices. They've rebelled against God. And if they're going to make a better job of going into the land the second time, then they need to face up to those bad choices which they made in the past. It doesn't seem that they've done that yet. They've had 40 years to think about it. But their leader seems to be wondering whether they've really come to terms with what happened back then. Moses is helping them to see that where they've been choosing death so that they might be ready to start choosing life. So in these opening moments of his sermon, Moses has reminded the people of how they've sinned when they rebelled against God. In chapter 2, we see them continuing to sin by failing to obey. Let me just show you very quickly what Moses does in chapter 2. After going 
back to the Red Sea, wandering a long time in the desert, God says, verse 2, you've made your way around this hill country long enough, now turn north. Give the people these orders. You're about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They'll be afraid of you, but be very careful. Don't provoke them to war, for I'll not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I've given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. Now tell me this, those of you who know this story well, or who maybe have a feel for this part of the Bible, does not sound familiar. I have given Esau the hill country. Flick back to chapter 1, verse 21. At that point, Moses addresses Israel and he says, See, the Lord your God has given you the land. God gave the promised land to Israel. We, we probably have a sense of that. That, that that's a, a promise that God made. But here we have the idea in chapter 2, verse 5, that he also gave the hill country of Seir to Esau and his descendants. Jump down to 2, verse 9. Don't harass the Moabites, for I've given our to the descendants of Lot as a, a possession. Jump down to 2, 19. Israel, we're told, are to leave the Ammonites alone because God has given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Do you see what's going on here? Israel aren't the only one whom God's given land to. God's given land to the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. How are they doing in possessing the land that they have been given? Well, actually, they all seem to have succeeded. It seems like God's people, Israel, are the only ones who don't manage to do the thing that God has asked them to do. Israel, it turns out, aren't very good at obeying God. Even the pagan nations around them do a better job. Well, Maybe Israel had an excuse. The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. There was this rumor going around that the land was full of giants. Well, Moses shows just what a hollow excuse that is. Verse 10 of chapter 2. The Amites used to live there, a people tall and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephaites. Rephaites are giants. Turns out that the Moabites had been able to chase whatever giants was in, were in their land. Verse 12, the Edomites were able to dispossess the Horites. Verse 20, the Ammonites were able to dispossess some Raphites uh, known as Zanzumites. Aren't these names great? See what Moses is saying here? Even the Ammonites and the Moabites... They were able to do what Israel wasn't. They took their land. What's your problem? You've been choosing death. Do you see that? Maybe now, this time, you'll be ready to choose life. 
Moses has been reminding Israel of their sin, rebelling against God, failing to obey. Before he wraps up this challenging introduction, he deals with one last excuse. Moses, uh, we know that we were supposed to take possession of the land, but it just couldn't be done. It just wasn't possible. Moses shows Israel that they could have done what God had asked them to do. The NIV headings uh, here give us most of the information we need. Chapter 2, verse 24, we read in a section there about a time when Moses and the people defeated Sion, king of Heshbon. And then in the opening verses of chapter 3, Moses reminds them that they were able to defeat Og, sorry, king of Bashan. One of my favorite parts of Deuteronomy that I've found so far in reading the book is, is right here, chapter 3, verse 11. Have a look. It's good fun. We're told there in chapter 3, verse 11, that only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaites. His bed was made of iron and was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. It's still there in Rabbah of the Ammonites. Israel had defeated King Og. But we're told that Og slept in a very large bed. Now tell me this. Who sleeps in a very large bed? Probably a very large person. Yeah? Og is a very large person. He's king of the very large people. He's the biggest guy in town. And with God's help, Israel have defeated him. You want to know? Go and look at his bed. It's still there. You can see it. Moses is reminding Israel here. The Edomites have their land. The Moabites have their land. The Ammonites have their land. And in those times when you obeyed God, you were able to take the small parcels of land that you've managed to take so far. But you still don't have the land, all that land over there. And your excuses are no excuses at all. If you want to choose life, you've got to stop choosing death. You've got to stop disobeying God and rebelling against him. Stop mistrusting him. At the start of this address, I asked you whether you had anyone in your life who loves you enough to point out your failings. Do you have anyone who cares so deeply about you that they would tell you where you're going wrong so that you can go right? I've got another movie clip for you. Don't panic. It comes from 1996, but it comes from a very, very different place. Let's watch this for a few moments together. Shall we all play a game? I command that we each tell Miss Woodhouse something entertaining. You may offer one thing very clever, two things moderately clever, or three things very dull indeed. Oh. <laughs> and in return, Miss Woodhouse will laugh heartily at them all. <laughs> I do not pretend to be a wit. 
though I have a great deal of vivacity in my own way, of course. These diversions are tolerable at Christmas when one is around the fire, but in my opinion, it wastes the outdoors. Miss Woodhouse, you must excuse me. And me. I'm an old married man. And have nothing to say that would please Miss Woodhouse. Yeah. Or any young lady. Oh, well, I need not be uneasy, as long as we're allowed three dull things. <laughs> very dull, in fact. I shall be sure to say three very dull things as soon as I open my mouth, shan't I? <laughs> there may be a difficulty. Oh, I doubt that. I'm sure I never fail to say things very dull. Yes, dear, but you'll be limited as to number, only three. Oh. Be sure. Yes. I'm. I, I see. I see. I see what she means. I will try and hold my tongue. Oh, I must make myself very disagreeable. Oh, she would not have said such a thing to an old. And, um, oh. oh, just three. Yes. Miss Bates, will you give me the pleasure of your company whilst I pick some more strawberries? Oh, thank you, Mr. Knightley. That would be charming. Emma, how could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? How could you be so insolent to a woman of her age and situation? I thought it possible. How could I help saying it? I dare say she did not understand me. I assure you she felt your full meaning. She cannot stop mentioning it. I wish you could have heard her honor your forbearance in putting up with her when her society is so irksome. I know there is no better creature in all the world, but you must allow that blended alongside the good, there is an equal amount of the ridiculous in her. Were she prosperous or a woman equal to you in situation, I would not quarrel about any liberties of manner. But she is poor. Even more so than when she was born. And should she live to be an old lady, she will sink further still. Her situation being in every way below you should secure your compassion. Badly done, Emma. It's uh, not a very high quality recording, so you may have missed a word or two here and there, but, but I'm sure the meaning wasn't lost on you. Emma, the precocious, spoiled heroine, ridicules and mocks a dear friend just for some easy laughs when she's in company. And her friend, Mr. Knightley, is good enough to point out her failings. He does that not because he dislikes Emma. It's because he loves her.
because he truly loves her that he's willing to point out her failings to her. He goes on, uh, the clip ends, but he goes on to say, it's not pleasant for me to say these things, but I must tell you the truth while I still can. Proving myself to be your friend by the most faithful counsel and trusting that sometime you'll do me the faith in your greater justice, sorry, do my faith in you greater justice than you do it now. Wow. He loves Emma, but he's willing to risk losing Emma. So important is her growth, her character, her development to him. Wow. Does anyone love you like that? I know someone who does. He's so keen to see you walking in the right way that he's willing to point out how very, very lost you are. He's so longing to see you walk in the truth that he, he won't hesitate to show you where you're deceived. He's so keen to bring you into life that he, he won't stop short of showing you the death that you're walking in. And then he'll give his life to bring you into that life. Do you know who I'm talking about? His name's Jesus. 3,000 years ago, as an old man about to go to his death, Moses stood before the people of Israel whom he loved, and he spoke to them about life and death, and he was willing to point out to them all the death that they were walking in. Because he longed for them to have life. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came among us, a greater Moses by far. And when he began to preach, he revisited the same theme. What were the very first words he said when he began to preach in public? Repent, because the kingdom of God's near. You've been going the wrong way. You're rebelling against your loving creator. You've been failing to walk in the ways of life. But here's the good news. You can turn. Stop choosing death. And choose life. I'm the only person who can bring you that life. Follow me. Folks, you have somebody in your life who will, if you'll allow him, tell you the truth about yourself. But he won't then turn and walk away. He'll show you the death that you're walking in and then call you out of it into a new life. Are you ready?
Stop choosing death. Choose life in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God, we, as so often when we spend time in your company, when we dwell on your word, we, we're unsettled, we're shaken right to the very core. But Lord, today, even as uncomfortable as we feel, we want to thank you. Thank you that you're willing to tell us what's wrong with us so that we can be made right, to show us how sick we are so that you can make us healthy again. Lord, I pray for each one of us, whether we've been walking with Jesus for years or whether this all sounds incredibly new. I pray, Lord, that we'd learn to trust you, even your hard words, because we know that they're for our good and that they're born out of love and that they're intended to draw us into life. Lord, help us not to stop thinking about these things. Keep us struggling with you, we pray. Amen.